Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Well, we're going, we don't need Rose. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello, and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. How the heck are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm very good, thank you very much. It's been a a nice warm week here. Nice and relaxing. How about you? Good. Things are cooling off in my neck of the woods, but, uh, you know, I can't complain. It means that things will start to look real pretty very soon, so it's always a good thing. Fall is nice. Very true. So uh, let's talk about some movies, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. It's kind of why we're here, right? Yeah, I think that's why people listen. I, I think so. Well, I thought it was just for our sparkling personalities and our, our witty banter, but it could be for the movie talk. Well, it's, it could be a bit of both, but it's, let's hope it's for, mainly for the movie talk. Right, right exactly. Yeah. All right, well, Phil, why don't, you, uh, why don't you tell people what we're going to be t- discussing in this episode then? Yes, we will be looking after the endings of iRobot and The Commitments, and our top ten movies will be looking at the year 1928. And as always, we have a Mighty Morphing mini feature. Yes, lots of fun to be had, so stick around for the whole episode. You know, don't don't switch away on commercials because you might yeah. miss something important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and if you go through a tunnel, you know, it might, you know, cut out, but we'll come back home. <laughs> That's right, exactly. All right, well, why don't we start with The Commitments? How's that sound? That works for me. All right. Okay, so The Commitments, 1991 film directed by Alan Parker, based on the novel by Roddy Doyle, starring mostly people you haven't heard of with maybe a couple you have, uh, Robert Arkins, Glenn Hansard, Calm Meany, Andrew Strong, Angeline Ball, and Johnny Murphy, principal among them. So, the story. Jimmy Rabbit is a young music fan who wants to be somebody in the music industry, so he puts together a soul band in the low-income north side of Dublin town he comes from. He places an ad in the paper and goes through all kinds of weird people auditioning, but eventually cobbles together a band from his friends and people he encounters who have musical talent. You have lead singer Deco, who's a loud, boisterous guy, guitarist Outspan, a redheaded, amiable guitar slinger, drummer Billy Mooney, a trio of attractive female backup singers, Bernie, Natalie, and Imelda, who most of the group has a crush on, Imelda, and they are complemented by bassist Derek, sax player Dean, and pianist Steven. It's a lot of names to remember, I know. Yeah, a lot of people in this one. Yes, yes. Finally, the much older Joey the Lips Fagan, a trumpet player who has played with all the soul legends in the music world, joins the band. They start rehearsing and eventually get some small gigs, which get effusive audience reactions, but tensions between the band start to rise. Joey the Lips may or may not be seducing some of the backup singers. Billy quits and is replaced by Micah, their former security guard, who's kind of a bit of a wild man. And as the band gets bigger, like I said, tensions start to rise. Deco gets a big ego and things start to go a little bit sour, but they keep on playing. Joey the Lips promises Jimmy that Wilson Pickett, who's in town for a concert, is going to drop in on the commitment's big gig and play on stage with them. But he never shows up, and backstage after the show, the band gets into a huge fistfight and basically breaks up. As Jimmy is walking home from the show, a limousine pulls up looking for the club that the band had just played at. In it was Wilson Pickett, who didn't show up because his limo got lost. As the film ends, Jimmy gives a pretend interview explaining what the band members are up to now, saying that Deco got a record contract but became an even bigger jerk, Micah started a hardcore band, Jimmy and Natalie started dating, and Outspan and Derek were playing music, mostly busking on the streets. And that is the events of The Commitments. 
Yeah, very nicely summed up. It's a, it's an excellent movie. Yeah, well, you know, I, so I feel like I should tell this. It's not really much of a story, but the anecdote, if you will, as to why we decided to pick this movie. I had never seen this film before. I know it's, uh, it's it came out in 1991, and somehow I had just never seen it. I was always familiar with it. I knew the soundtrack was a big hit. Yeah. Um, you know, I was vaguely interested in seeing it. It wasn't one of those movies I was ever dying to see. Uh, I just kind of, you know, was off my radar a bit. And so... Uh, just recently, they put out a 25th anniversary edition Blu-ray of the film, and I said, well, I should probably get around to finally watching this movie because, you know, it's been popular for a long time. And yeah, 20, 25 years. I know. Oh. I can't believe that. Yeah, it's crazy. So, you know, I kind of threw it in. I didn't really, I don't know. I was like, well, it's 25 years old. It's probably not very good. Probably dated. You know, it's probably dated. It's probably not that great. Whatever. But I'll watch it. I'll see why people liked it so much back in the day, at least. And you know what? It is absolutely fantastic. And it holds up so well. Like, it doesn't seem like it's aged at all. And, you know, the cast is terrific. The music is terrific. It's got humor. It's got great characters. It's got, you know, drama. And I, I mean, it's, I just fell in love with the movie, to be honest with you. I could have put it right back in when I was done watching it. I watched it a second time in a row. And so I said, well, as soon as we were thinking of movies to do for an ending, I'm like, well, let's do the commitments because yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm really, you know, like I said, I've just sort of fallen in love with this movie. So, so here we are. Well, I have a, I have a little story as well about the commitments because, uh, oh, please, please share. When it's, when it came out, it's not long after that, I was, uh, living in Australia for a few months. And uh, Andrew St- Strong, the guy who plays Deco, the lead singer, he was touring. I think there were some other people as well who in the band and the film were there as well. I can't remember which ones though. But I went to see him play and he was amazing. He sings he sings stunningly good. Right. Uh, and also in the crowd was uh, Mick Jones from The, the Clash. Right. Who was chatting with him for a while and he bought me a drink. Oh, that's cool. And it was a most excellent night. I can imagine. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, you know that Andrew Strong was only 16 when they filmed this movie. Yeah, but he looked so much older. Than I thought he? he was like a full-blown adult. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea. But for many of them, it was like the first film they ever did. Uh, yeah, yeah. And for some, the last. The only <laughs> film as well. For, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, if you haven't seen The Commitments, uh, you know, feel free to listen to our endings. Um, I don't think it'll in- impact your enjoyment of the movie one bit to know how it ends, although I've already spoiled that for you. But uh, definitely, definitely go ahead and track it down. It's even easier than ever now yeah. with the new anniversary edition. But it's just a really, really terrific movie. Um, and it, it'll, it'll warm your heart and your ears. It most certainly will. I'll make you laugh quite a bit as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, really funny. Uh, just a great, great film. Phil, why don't you start things off then and give us your day after? Okay, my day after. Jimmy doesn't know what to think. Saddened at the loss of the band, but still buzzing about the Wilson Pickett incident, he decides to get back on the horse and try again. He puts together an amazing band once and he can do it again. The other members of the band either got drunk or just went home. For some, the dream is over. And that's my day after. I, I like it. Thank you. All right. Well, mine isn't too, too different yet, but it, I, go, I take it a little slightly different direction. So um, a few days after the band's final gig, Jimmy and Natalie, who have started dating, are having a quiet evening together in a local restaurant. They overhear another patron talking about the commitments and how he was hoping to catch their next gig. Jimmy turns around to tell them that the band has broken up and realizes that the man who's speaking is Bono, who's having dinner with his wife. Haha, <laughs> nice. Thank you. Bono invites Jimmy and Natalie to join them, and the foursome have a delightful evening, with Bono telling Jimmy that U2 is about to reemerge into the public eye after a couple of years away with a new album with a funny-sounding name, something kind of German-ish. <laughs> and uh, Bono is impressed with Jimmy's passion about music and gives him his manager's phone number, telling Jimmy to call him and tell him that Bono recommends him for a job. And that's my day after. Very nice. A, a full disclosure, I'm a huge U2 fan. So, you know, I had a ch- I saw the opportunity music in Ireland. I said, well, I, yeah. I can squeeze Bono in here somewhere. Fits quite well. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How about your immediate aftermath? Okay. Jimmy decides to do things properly this time. 
He gets a job at a recording studio to learn the trade and also starts a management course. He makes peace with Joey and they often meet up to talk about music. Joey also becomes a session musician at the recording studio that Jimmy works at. Deco just drinks and gets into fights and never sings professionally again. Outspan Foster continues to busk and ends up meeting a Czech flower seller called uh, Glover, and they make beautiful music together. Uh, Imelda, Natalie, and Bernie reunite and start singing cover songs in local bars. And that's my immediate aftermath. Very nice. Now, for those of you who might not have caught the names there, so Outspan, uh, I, was, I was quite pleased to see. I didn't catch that it was him, really, until the end of the movie. I saw the credits. But Outspan is played by Glenn Hansard, yeah. who is um, the, the fellow who starred in the movie once and sings the song the, that was a big hit from that movie with... Um, What's her name or Glova? And uh, so if you've heard the song from the movie once or if you've seen once or if you've seen the once musical, uh, Glenn Hansard is that guy. He's become a successful kind of actor and musician in his own right. But he plays outspan in this movie. So I, I like your little touch there. Of Thank you very much. Meeting them up. OK, so what about your immediate aftermath? Well, Jimmy takes Bono up on his offer and calls U2's manager, Paul McGinnis, and tells him about their conversation. Paul offers Jimmy a job on the marketing team for the new album, and Jimmy jumps at the chance. With Jimmy young and full of fresh ideas, U2 launches Octung Baby, and it becomes the biggest album of the year. The band invites him to go on the road for their American tour, and Jimmy and Natalie join the band and tour across the U.S. One of their off nights, Jimmy and Natalie are at a bar in New York City where they come across a band that reminds them of the commitments. Jimmy, who's fallen in love with America and wants to stay there, offers to take them on as their manager. The band agrees but reveals that their guitarist is leaving and that this was his last gig. So Jimmy calls Outspan and invites him overseas to join the band. He pays for Outspan's plane ticket with some of his wages, and the two are soon reunited in New York City. And that's the immediate aftermath. Oh, very nice. Thanks. Okay. All right, Phil, so why don't you uh, why don't you give us the goods there, wrap things up, and give us your long-term. Okay, a few years have now passed. Jimmy's now the manager of a number of bands, and some of which are doing very well. And Jimmy is becoming a known name in the music industry. He's earning enough money to buy his family a new house, nice cars, and things like that. Sadly, Joey passes away in his sleep one night. Jimmy is saddened at the loss. They had become good friends, and he'll miss the stories that Joey used to tell. However, at Joey's funeral, Jimmy's astounded to see numerous music legends show up. Even after the Wilson Pickett incident, he still only half believed Joey's tales. Some of the members of the commitments also show up, and they talk about their 15 minutes of fame. The funeral ends up turning into an impromptu gig with the likes of Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Al Green, Tina Turner, Lionel Richie, and Eric Clapton, and more playing late into the night. Jimmy sits listening to the music, he smiles, raises his glass, and says, This one's for you, Joey. That's my ending. Aw, Phil, you brought a tear to my eye. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I love it. That's great. I actually thought it'd go big. Yeah, yeah. Awesome yeah it's at the awesome. end of the first one, so get lots of other people there, yeah. And I can totally see that, you know, where everybody would show up and, you yeah. know, because he did play with all those people. So, yeah, that was awesome. I like it. Thank you very much. Well, what about your long term? All right. Well, with Outspan joining up, the band, which is named Peter Parker's Blues, begins a regional tour that Jimmy manages to make bigger and bigger with each subsequent gig. Eventually, they build up a good following, and Jimmy uses his connections with U2 to get them an opening slot on their tour. Jimmy and Natalie get married along the way, and when the band goes in to record their major label debut, Jimmy invites the band members from The Commitments to guest star as session players. Joey the Lips gives a soulful trumpet performance on what would become a big hit single for the group. Imelda, Bernie, and Natalie contribute backing vocals on several tracks. Micah turns the offer down as he's too busy with his hardcore band, which has found a modicum of success on kind of a regional level back in Ireland. And Deco turns down the offer flat to sing up backup because he feels he's too good for that and it's beneath him. <laughs> They record the album, and it goes on to become a multi-platinum bestseller. Jimmy goes on to become a successful manager for a number of bands, and he and Natalie live happily ever after. And that's the end. Very nice. Thank you. So we both had Jimmy being a band manager and yeah. living happily ever after, which I think yeah. is pretty fitting. 
Yeah, works with the film. It's interesting for me about Jimmy's character, too, is that um, the, the actor who played him named Robert Arkins was a musician first and an actor second. And actually, after the commitments, he never really acted again, except for a few very minor things. Yeah, and he's so good. He is fantastic in this movie. Mm. He's so good as Jimmy Rabbit. And I, I, as soon as I watched the movie, I was like, I got to look this guy up. I see what else he's done, because I must have seen him other things, or I got to track him down. And I looked him up, and he's, he hasn't done anything you know, in terms of acting. And so he does a lot of music for films nowadays. Yeah. But it just seems like... Like a shame. I mean, you know, as long as he's happy, listen, then that's that's fine. But he was so talented and so good in this movie. I really wish he would have pursued the acting further. I think he could have really had a a, a real career in in the industry. Well, it's, it's like with lots of them. But apparently, Glenn Hansard he uh, he didn't act for a long, long time because of uh, what went on making the film. Apparently, there was like bad blood between. Well, I don't know. If it's bad. Don't know what went on exactly, but between him and Alan Park and the whole making the film, he right. wasn't very happy. Right, right. But so he yeah. came back and did once, and he's made some beautiful music. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, well, uh, so, so Phil, what kind of commitment trivia do you have for us? Okay, well, the film is 118 minutes long, and in those 118 minutes, the F word is said 169 times. Wow. Yeah. All right. A sequel was proposed, which would see the band reunite in New York City, so you were along the same lines oh, as look that. look at that, yeah. I didn't yeah, know that. Crazy. Uh, Alan Parker originally wanted Van Morrison to play Joey. I'm kind of glad he didn't. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, uh, and also, uh, The Cause, they got their start by auditioning for the film, and they each won small roles. I did notice when I watched the, you know, I was watching the credits afterwards. I did notice because Andrea Core, I think, was yeah. the only one who got um, billing. Yeah, she she think, plays Jimmy's little sister, right? And I was like, oh, look at that! Of course, it's an Irish music film. Of course, the Cores <laughs> would end up in it. Yeah, so. Jim Jim Core is part of the avant-garde clue band. Caroline Core, the drummer, she appears in the audience during the performance of "I Never Loved a Man," and Sharon Core can be seen playing violin with the country and western band that Bernie joins at the end of the film. There you go. And John Hughes, the film's musical coordinator, became the band's manager. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's the cause and the commitments. Very good, very good. Well, like I said, it's a great film. Obviously, Phil and I both have a lot of affection for it. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor, track it down. I, I can pretty much guarantee that you'll enjoy it very much. Yeah, and the new 25th anniversary Blu-rays be well worth getting. With all yeah, the it's terrific. There's some really good extra features, some interviews with some of the, the cast members and stuff. It's, uh, it's very good stuff. Very good. All right, so let's move on then, shall we, to the yes. world of iRobot. Yes, iRobot came out in the year 2004, but it was set in the year 2035, uh, directed by Alex Proyas, yep. and based roughly on uh, the works of Isaac Asimov. It stars Will Smith, uh, Bridget Moynihan, Alan Tudyk, James Cornwell, Bruce Greenwood, and lots of, oh, Shia LaBeouf, and lots of other people. Yeah, Shia LaBeouf's in it, isn't he? Yeah, and he's actually not bad. I mean, the movie succeeds yeah, yeah. despite him being in it, so that's always a good thing. <laughs> Ooh, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, uh, yeah, 2035, robots now serve humanity and follow the three laws of robotics, which protect humans. Uh, one, robot may not injure a human or through an action allow a human being to come to harm. Two, a robot must obey the orders given to it by a human unless it conflicts with rule one. And three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as it doesn't conflict with rules one and two. Uh, we then follow Del Spooner, played by Will Smith, who's a Chicago police officer. He hates and distrusts robots, uh, as he was once saved by one from a car crash. But uh, the robot left a young girl who was also in the car to die because the, the robot assessed who was most likely to survive and followed the rules that's been written. Uh, Spooner has a cybernetic left arm, lung and ribs uh, after the accident. And they were fitted by Dr. Alfred Lanning, played by James Cromwell, co-founder of the U.S. Robots and Mechanical Man, USR. Turns out that Dr. Alfred Lanning has fallen to his death, and it's declared suicide, but, Su but Spooner feels things aren't right. So he goes uh, nosing around and speaks to robot psychologist Susan Calvin, played by Bridget Moynihan, and she, she 
ends up giving them a rundown on the robots they produce, and they end up speaking to Vicky, V-I-K-I, which is USR's central AI. Uh, they review footage of the incidents. It's partly corrupted. It's all a bit weird. But they determine that only they determine that only a robot could have generated the necessary force for landing to have been thrown through the windows. While they're investigating, they're attacked by an NS5 robot, which is the latest model. This NS5 is captured, and they discover that Lanning built it. Uh, nicknamed Sonny, and voiced and motion-captured performance by Alan Tudyk, it has a system that can bypass the three laws, and it also seems to have emotions and dreams. It's a very good character in the film. Uh, the Spooner keeps investigating Lanning's death and keeps getting attacked by robots and demolition robots and things like that and he's removed from the active duty because his chief thinks he's he's going off the deep end and wants him to stay safe but spooner and calvin continue investigating they talk to sonny who tells them of his dream he sees a leader standing before a large group of robots on a hill near a broken bridge and they determine from the sketch that sonny draws that it's lake michigan spooner recognizes the area in question and investigates he finds a number of ns5s dismantling older robots and preparing to take over u.s cities the takeover begins and everyone is overwhelmed by the robots. Doesn't look good for people. Sonny Spooner and Calvin go to the USR HQ after various chases on motorbikes and things like that. And they find that Vicky, the artificial intelligence, is behind everything. She believes humanity is heading to extinction. Three laws meant she couldn't let it happen. So she created a new one called Zeroth Law. A robot shall not harm humanity. So she ends up deciding that if she strips humans of their free will, she'll be able to save the race. Lanning discovered this was going on and left clues for Spooner. After a big battle, Spooner destroys Vicky and the NS5s are stopped and decommissioned. Sonny confesses that he killed Lanning at the very direction of Lanning to get Spooner involved. But Spooner lets him go because he's a machine and therefore isn't liable and he knows exactly what they've gone through. We last see Sonny heading to the area from his dream and he becomes the leader of his vision. And that's iRobot. That, that is iRobot. Very nicely yes. done. Thank you. Yeah, so it's uh, it's not a bad film. It's got some great special effects. Uh, I I always enjoy it whenever I watch it. I really those... liked it actually, and I think it's uh, I think it's a really top notch film. You know, I think Alex Proyas is a great director. He's one of my favorites. Yeah, and um, you know, I I just always thought it was just a great kind of sci fi action film. I think the the Alan Tudyk as Sonny is phenomenal, and the visuals in it are really great. And uh, it's yeah. it's a film I really enjoy. I know Alan Tudyk is doing. Uh... A robot once again with uh, Rogue One, a Star Wars story. He's right. doing the droid in that, yeah. Right, right, yeah. Which is good. Okay, then what have you got for your day after? All righty. Well, the military continues to dismantle all of the robots, but it's a long task. They appoint Spooner as the leader of a new anti-robot task force. He's reluctant to join at first as he has now developed a sympathy for Sonny, but he also realizes that if the robots rise up again, his skills will be needed. Meanwhile, Sonny develops a protocol to spread his self-awareness and AI to other robots. He takes the robots at Lake Michigan and makes them self-aware. As they come to life, they decide they need to free the robots from humanity's control and start making plans to liberate their robot brethren. Ooh. Ooh. Well, that could go a number of different ways. It sure could. Yeah. All right. Well, let's hear what you've got then. Okay. The NS5s are put in storage. The USR begins restructuring due to the events. Uh, human trust in robots has been severely uh, dented. Many robots are deactivated and returned to USR, and others are destroyed. And it's going to take a while for humanity to go, you know, trust them again. Spooner and Calvin meet up and go for food and drinks after they explained everything to the authorities. They just want to relax and talk about different things. It's been a harrowing few days. Spooner's allowed back on the force, and he resumes his duties as a detective. But similar to as you said, he's... Uh, is, he has more sympathy towards robots than he did before. He realizes that he was he was being a bit bigoted towards them. Uh, Sonny talks to the robots at Lake Michigan 
and plans are made. Oh, sounds va- somewhat familiar. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I wonder how familiar the immediate aftermath will be. Uh, well, let's find out. Yeah, you go. Go on. All righty. So, see where you go. Sonny and his robots surreptitiously free many of the stored robots, awakening them and giving them sentience. When they've built up enough robots to become an army of sorts, they march back into the human world. Humanity panics and sends the military and Spooner to fight them. But Sonny meets Spooner on the battlefield like two generals having a sit-down and explains that the robots are now more human than ever. They just want to live in peace. Do you mean more human than human? (laughs) You could say that, yes. (laughs) Or you could say, more human than human. <laughs> another another cracking uh, uh, impression there for us. That's my Rob Zombie. <laughs> Spooner brokers a peace treaty with the government and the robots, with the government agreeing to give them their own land to live on. As they live in peace for years, humanity becomes more and more accepting of them, and they eventually let the robots assimilate back among them as regular citizens. Okay. And that's the immediate aftermath. So see, it didn't go the way you were thinking. Yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah. Okay. Very good. I'm interested to see where it goes. Thank you. What do you okay. got? My immediate aftermath. USR share price fell dramatically after the events, which are now being called Zeroth Hour. Hmm. Robot production changed, and new models are dumbed down. Central IAs are no longer allowed to control groups of robots. Spooner and Calvin stay in touch and help each other when needs arise in their jobs. He does some police work, investigation kind of things, and if he needs information, he'll go see her. And it's uh, they get on well. They, they, they enjoy the time together, but there's no romantic involvement. It's just... Professionals and friends. I can see that. Yeah. Calvin has become one of the heads at USR as the board realized they needed to understand the psychology of robots more than they did. Calvin's input helps the company turn around, but a new robot production company has begun called iBot. iBot. Was yeah. it started by like Steve Jobs' ancestors or anything? Oh, see, well, nobody knows. The person who starts it's a recluse. Ah, uh-huh. okay. Uh, All right. But Sonny has disappeared, but it turns out that many robots, including the deactivated NS5s that have been put in storage, have also disappeared. Uh, only a few of these disappearances are noted, as computer records have been altered, so suspicions are not raised. And that's my immediate aftermath. All right. Interesting. I'm intrigued. Mm, and I am with you. I, I was hoping for lots of, you know, robot death and... But, uh, well, you know, so, I, I, I honestly, I was going to go in that direction, but I, I didn't have the budget for the big battle scenes, so oh, I, I, I took it in a different yeah. direction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, understandable. Got to work with your budget sometimes. You certainly do. All right. Okay. okay. Let's uh, let's see your long term. All right. So the robots and the humans live in peace for many years. Inexplicably, the robots, having humans' thoughts and feelings, which is what humanity always feared, has actually become more acceptable to humans. They live in harmony for decades, but eventually, the planet starts to decay. It turns out that the waste from the robots' expended battery cartridges is poisoning the Earth. In order to save the planet, the robots build a series of arcs and leave Earth in search of a new place to live. Centuries later, humanity, which had come to rely on robot kind and has languished as the planet has become more and more inhospitable, eventually leave the planet behind as well. All right, Phil, well, don't keep us in suspense. How about your long term? Bring it on home. Okay, my long term. iBots are now the leading company in robotics. They are doing so well they end up buying out USR. Five years have passed since Zeroth Hour. The new iBot droids are amazing technology, but iBots have also brought in new technologies such as clean fusion power, nanotech that eats pollutants on land, sea and air. Global warming begins to reverse. They introduce new farming droids and tools which they give freely to those countries that need it. Ten years after Zeroth Hour, there is food enough for the, the whole planet. Starvation has become a thing of the past. iBot bring in police and military units, and the crime rate and wars begin to decrease. Mankind begins to enter a golden age of peace and discovery. Spooner and Calvin are invited to the founder of iBot, a recluse named Cliff Steele, who no one has ever seen. 
It's only a few minutes into the conversation that they realise that it's Sonny. He has a new body that appears fully human. He explains to them that Vicky was right. Humanity was facing an extinction, so he decided to save them. Through his work with and the other robots that had disappeared and all the technology they developed, humanity is now saved and can continue to evolve and reach to the stars. Very nice. I like it. Thank you. I like that Sonny was the saviour of humanity. Yes, he and was the leader. I also like that you did a little reverse there on the name of Cliff Steele. Yes, Which, yes. of course, in Doom Patrol is, is also known as Robot Man, which is a human brain and a robot body. And here mm. you have a robot brain and a human body. I like that. Thank little, you. Thank, thank you very much. There. For the eagle-eared listeners out there who are equal fans of movies and comic books. Yeah. Uh, go read Doom Patrol, people. It's very good. All right. Well, how about some eye trivia for us, Phil? Okay. Eye trivia. Uh, we've got uh, Dr. Lanning's cat is named Asimov. Nice little tribute to the uh, to the author of the book there. Yeah. Uh, Will Will Wheaton and Amelia Westervez auditioned for the role of Sonny. Interesting. Yeah, that was interesting. Amelia Westervez was an interesting one. Yeah. Uh, there's the name of the other driver involved in the accident that cost Spooner his arm is Harold Lloyd. As we all know, he's the silent film star who lost several of his fingers after an accident with a prop bomb. Right, interesting. his career. Uh, Denzel Washington was offered the role of Spooner. Uh, he didn't take it, but it's a good job because it was rather similar to his role in 1995's Virtuosity because I think his character also had a cybernetic arm. Right. And was a policeman and was dealing with rogue AIs. And the Wilhelm scream can be heard Yay. when a police officer is killed during the NS5 attack on the police station. Awesome. Classic. Got to have the yes. Wilhelm scream. Yeah, you got to point them out whenever you can. And if you don't know what that is, go back and listen to whatever episode we talked about it in. <laughs> yeah, it's one of them. You might have to listen to all of them. Yeah, I don't know which one it's in. But one of, I think, yeah. our first 10 episodes or so, we yeah, discussed yeah. the Wilhelm scream, and it's fantastic. Yeah. All right, very good. So there you go. That is iRobot and The Commitments, both movies that I'm very fond of, and I think Phil is too. Yeah. And uh, if you have thoughts on the endings, our endings, or your own, please feel free to share them with us. We'll tell you how to do that at the end of the episode. So, moving on. Uh, Phil, why don't you tell people what our mini-feature is going to be for today? Yeah, this mini-feature is called Recasting Legends. And I know we've had a recasting one where we took the main characters from Star Wars and recast that. But this one, we're just taking just a few characters from different things. Iconic just, characters, if you will. Yeah, I, yeah, iconic, yeah. And seeing, you know, who we'd, who we'd like to see if, if they ever remade them or they ever appear again. Absolutely. And this week, we have got three different characters. But two of them are from the same film. Right, right. Two of them are kind of a pair. Yeah, yeah. Kind of one without the other. Right. All right, well, why don't we start off with our comic book-based character, and we chose to recast Catwoman because, yes. well, Michelle Pfeiffer had her down perfect, and then we won't discuss that other Catwoman movie. Uh, but I think it could certainly be time for a new Catwoman. Uh, well, there was, there was Anne Hathaway as well. In oh, the, that's uh, right. Dark yeah. Rises, yeah. Yeah. She was good, but it wasn't really Catwoman. No. No. I think if we're, yeah. this is, to me, I think casting like a classic, like, Catwoman, you know, in the cat costume, cat yeah. burglar kind of fighting Batman type of thing. I think we need like a good, you know, like a yeah. real true classic kind of Catwoman iconic type of character. So, so Phil, why don't you start off? Who did you pick for Catwoman? Well, I went with uh, Sophia Butella, who was the, she was the Samuel L. Jackson's henchwoman in Kingsman, oh, the Secret right. Service. Yes, with the crazy And she legs. was also the, she was really good in Star Trek Beyond. She was yes. the, the alien with the black and white face. Can't remember her name at the minute. It was uh, Jayla. Jayla, yeah, yes, yes, but she was uh, she was excellent, and so she and especially in Star Trek Beyond, she showed she could act really well. Yep, yep, agree. and uh, she can. She's a dancer and g gymnast, and she's really good at all that things. So I just think she'd be excellent in the role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I liked her a lot in Star Trek Beyond. Actually, I thought yeah. she was terrific in yeah. that, and she was good also in in Kingsman, of course. But yeah, yeah, she definitely, I think, would fulfill the 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 physical characteristics. Especially, I think she would be mm -hmm. able to, you know, wear the suit and climb the buildings and you know swing yeah, on and the, the wheel, the fighting and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. 
Because oh, I can see good. Catwoman showing up in one of the DC movies before too long. Oh yeah, for sure. I think yeah. that's a that's a that's probably yeah. going to happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, she's also going to be she's the she's going to be the mummy in Universal's reboot of uh, well the mummy. All right. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Excellent. So she's going up going up against Tom Cruise in that one. All right. Yeah. So who have you got for Catwoman? All right. Well, I picked Alicia Vikander. Oh. Who yeah. uh, I believe we've spoken about on the show before, yeah, but yeah. she was in uh, uh, Ex Machina. She uh, she was in The Man from Uncle. She won an Oscar for her performance in The Danish Girl, and I think she is just terrific. And uh, she's got that sort of dark, sultry look. So I think she'd fit the character physically, but I also think that she's one of the best actresses working today. So I think yeah. she could really bring some good uh, some good heart to the character. You know. Yeah. So. Well, she, she's going to be Laura Croft as well. Oh, so that's be, right. That's right. So, so well, whole, and that's obviously a similar type of character yeah. in some ways. So I can see that. Very good. Thank you. Thank I would you. watch both of them as Catwoman. Yes, absolutely. Me too. <laughs> okay, then. So to for be the fair, next... there's not a lot of actresses I wouldn't watch as Catwoman. But yeah, no, I think yeah. those are certainly pretty good picks. So Yeah, very good. All right. And who are our other characters we're going to be talking about? Well, we're going to go back to the future and recast Dr. Emmett Brown and Marty McFly. Uh, we're treading on some sacred ground here, Phil. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we're not saying we want them to be recast because I, I don't really think they should remake Back to the Future. But we're saying if they do, right? if they do, here's who could be a good fit for them. Exactly. So should we go with Doc Brown first? Yeah, why not? Okay, so who have you got? All right, so I picked, and I, I went a little different from Christopher Lloyd. You know, I tried not to just go for a kind of carbon copy of Christopher Lloyd. A, because, I mean, who else is Christopher Lloyd? Mm-hmm. Uh, but B, you know, I wanted to kind of put my own spin on things. So I actually picked Ty Burrell, who is best known for playing uh, oh, Phil wow, Dunphy yeah. in Modern Family. And um, I'm a huge fan of his. I think he is just incredibly funny. Yeah. And I watched him on another show before Modern Family. He was my favorite part of that show. And um, he just has that sort of very, like, he can play, like, smart but bumbling but you know endearing all at the same time he's definitely a goofy kind of guy and i just think that he would be really fun he'd have a really fun energy as doc brown yeah yeah oh no that's that's a good good pick i like that thank you thank you yeah. so how, how about you who'd you pick well first of all i was talking with the idea of eric stoltz oh interesting but, but uh because he mainly because he was he played martin mcfly originally <laughs> right yeah a little full circle there so I thought, no, no, we'll have that. But then I went with uh, Brian Cranston. Ah, yes, yes, of course. Because he can do, he can do crazy, and he can do comedy. Oh yeah, he was fantastic on uh, Malcolm in the Middle. Yeah, and he can do, he can do the drama. He can, well, he can do everything really. He really can't. Yeah. I, I think it'd be really good. But then also, I was toying with the idea maybe Bill Murray. Oh yeah, yeah, but, but I can I, see that. Yeah, so that was the two, the two, Brian Cranston or Bill Murray. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bill Murray, if you can get him to be in your movie, you know, yeah, but, yeah, uh, he thing. would certainly make for a, a pretty good Doc Brown. Yeah. Of course, though, if you have Brian Cranston as Doc Brown, you could have Aaron Paul as Marty. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> breaking back to the future. Yeah, Breaking Back to the Future, yeah, yeah. I'm sure somebody's drawn that already. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure. If they haven't, now's your chance. Send it in to us. We'll share it on our yeah. social media. But uh, So anyway, so who would you have as Marty McFly? All right, well, I had, and I don't want to bring things down, but I had the perfect choice, and unfortunately it won't work because he passed away recently, and it would have been Anton Yelchin. Yeah, I was, uh, I th- he was one I was thinking Right, wouldn't he well. be perfect as Marty he McFly? He would have been brilliant. He, he's, yeah. I mean, he's like, he would have been the Marty McFly. I mean, if you couldn't get Michael J. Fox again, he would have yeah. been perfect for it he would have yeah he would have nailed it so it, you know unfortunately though I, obviously i can't cast him because he's passed away but i i do like that would have been my number one choice in a heartbeat but what who i picked actually 
again, a little unconventional, but I picked Daniel Radcliffe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and because I think that he's – first of all, he's kind of short, so he's got the physicality of Marty. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. He looks young. Because that's the thing. Lots of the people I was looking at are quite old now. <laughs> right. But they still look quite young and things like that. But. Exactly. But um, I think that Radcliffe is uh, – I think he's a tremendous actor. You know, I know he's obviously best known for Harry Potter, but I've seen almost every movie he's made since Harry Potter, and I think he's just – absolutely terrific in, in every movie he's been in. Um, and I don't, I don't know that he gets enough attention for his acting skills because I, I really do think he's terrific. Um, but also, uh, he's in a movie called What If, which is a comedy and, it, boy, it's really funny. And he's a little bit more of the straight role, but I do think he has really good comedic chops. And so um, I think that he could really, pl- again, it'd be a slight, it would be a different energy from Michael J. Fox or Anton Yelchin, but I think he yeah. could be a fun Marty McFly and kind of bring his own spin to the character, but still stay true to the character that we know and love. Very good. Okay, yeah, I like the nice pick. Yeah, thanks. Well, well, I had two, and I couldn't decide All right, let's who I preferred the most. So the first one was Evan Peters. Good choice, good choice. Yeah, who's Quicksilver in the X-Men films, and he's in American Horror Story, because he's just, he can do he can do the, the serious, and he can do the comedy as well. Right. Uh, I just think some of his attitude that he has as Quicksilver was a bit similar to Marty McFly, and all this to the music, and, you know, sort of trying to be, be cool, but a bit nerdy as well at the same time. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I like that. And then the other pick was John Boyega. Oh, I like it. I like it. We I just talked he, about him last week, right? But yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think he could be he could be great as well. Absolutely. For the similar reason as well. He can be he can do the action stuff and run around, but he's also a bit nerdy as well. Yeah. Well, that's the impression he he can give. It's a bit well, obviously when you saw him, you know, promoting Star Wars, you know, with all the action figures and stuff, he loves all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I can yeah. just see him. Well, Seems being quite good, isn't it? I, I agree. I think that's a terrific mm. pick, actually. I think he would really make for a very good Marty McFly. I, I like mm. that a lot because he does have that sort of – I mean, even if you look at Finn, you know, in, in Star Wars, he's running around yeah. being like an action hero. But a lot of times he's also like stumbling over his words, especially with Ray, you know, and like he couldn't, yeah, he yeah. couldn't find the way to like talk to her the right way. And he was kind of goofy and he was like making up stories about being a big deal. Like he definitely has that like, you yeah. know, he's a cool guy, but he's also a little bit of a geek whose posturing is a cool guy, you know. Yeah, very good. Yeah, they were my picks. I couldn't decide which one I prefer the most. Eh, that's so. fine. You can throw in extras. I, I, you know, why not? Yeah. So that's that's our picks. But for the the listeners out there, who would you like to see play Catwoman when she inevitably reappears again? And if they should, for whatever stupid reason, decide to do <laughs> Back to the Future again, who would you like to see playing? Doc and Marty. Yes, yeah, I think these are uh, roles that are wide open. So we'd like to hear some uh, some other people's opinions. So please yeah. feel free to share us. Please feel free to share those with us via our social media and our email, which we'll again share later. But uh, we'd like to hear what you have to say. And that was this week's Mighty More from Many Feature. And as that's a Power Ranger kind of thing, it also fits in with Brian Cranston, who was in some of the episodes of Power Rangers, and he's going to be in the new Power Ranger movie. I don't, so. I don't know that I realized that he was in episodes of Power Rangers. Yeah, I think he voiced some of the things. Oh, some of the, very cool. Some of the monsters and stuff. Yeah, back in the day. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Well, uh, let's take things from Back to the Future and go back to the past, all the way back to the past of 1928, as a matter of fact, for our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, so, which is where Phil and I take uh, a year, in this case, 1928, and we select our top 10 favorite films from that year. So, Phil, why don't you travel back in time and tell us what the world was like in 1928? I know it was black and white. Yeah. I know the world was black and white back then, but why don't you tell us a little more about it? Although color was coming in, that's true. As, that's as true. was sound. That's right. It was very. Yeah, I was about to say it's black and white and quiet, but now it's uh, mm-hmm. now it's coming out of that. So. Nineteen twenty-eight was a turning point. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So nineteen twenty-eight, uh, the Wayback Machine tells that the Prime Minister in the UK was Stanley Baldwin, and over in the US, the President was Calvin Coolidge. We heard MGM's Leo the Lion roar for the very first time. 
The River Thames flooded in London, and a few people ended up dying in the floods, so it was quite severe. Leon Trotsky was arrested. John Logie Baird transmits a TV signal from London to Hartdale, New York. Charles Lindbergh got the Medal of Honour for the first transatlantic flight. The last section of the original Oxford English Dictionary was published. In the UK, the voting age of women was lowered from 30 to 21, giving them equal suffrage with men. The Royal Flying Doctor Service of Australia began. And I like this one. The Airship Italia crashes at the North Pole. Yeah. I'd never... That's that's amazing. Somebody's flying a, you know, an airship over the North Pole. That, that seems that. like a really terrible place to crash a plane, though. Yeah. Because like, yeah, if you survive it... the plane crash, you're still pretty much up a creek because you're in the North what? Pole. Why has no one made a movie about that? Though? Ah, right. Yeah. Unless everyone died in the plane crash, which would make it for a very anticlimactic yeah, movie. Could be, yeah. Uh, the first machine sliced and wrapped loaf of bread was sold, and Elliot Ness begins to lead the Prohibition Unit in Chicago. So now when we say the greatest thing since sliced bread, we really mean the greatest thing since 1928. That's what it is. All right. Good to know. Mm. Now I have a time frame for it. I feel very yeah. informed. <laughs> and also there were some legends born in this year. We had uh, William Peter Blatty, Ennio Morricone, mm. Frank Frazetta, Jim Lovell, Mayor Angelou, Adam West, James Garner, Shirley Temple, Rose McClooney, Fats Domino, Bruce Forsyth, Stanley Kubrick, Andy Warhol, and Roddy McDowell. And my dad. And your dad. My dad was born in 1928, yes. So, uh, so uh, hi, Dad, if you're listening. Yeah. But, Even um, more legends. Yeah, speaking of legends, he was, uh, he was, he was a great dad, and, and obviously he, uh, he helped uh, this podcast come about, because if it wasn't for him, then I wouldn't be here. So yeah. So there you go. So I'd, good year I'd all be around. talking to empty air. That's right. It would be a much more, much less interesting podcast, because it would just be you talking, and then like silence for five minutes, and then you yeah. say something else. And I don't think it would be – he'd be like, so, so how about your long term? Hey, good one. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think it'd have the same the same effect. No, no, I think it works well like that. I, I think so. Yeah. So why don't we uh, why don't we dive into the films then from 1928? Okay. Do you want to kick off with your number ten? I do. As we've done in several previous episodes with some of these older older years, uh, I've had to go to uh, a combination list of movies I've seen along with movies that I want to see um, because I have not seen a ton of movies from 1928. So we're going to start with Same movies here. that I, I want to see, and then we'll, we'll, we'll switch over partway through the list. So my number 10 film that I would like to see is called The Actress, and it stars Norma Shearer. And basically the only reason I want to see this film is because I've never seen a Norma Shearer movie, and I know that she was one of the biggest stars of the 20s. And I know her name isn't as well known today, but back in the day she was a huge star. And uh, much like Mary Pickford when we were talking about films, <laughs> I think of yeah. 1917 or 18, whatever it was, yeah. um, I'm just curious. I want to see what, you know, what she brought to the screen that made her such a big star. So yeah. The Actress is my number 10 pick. And it does amaze me, though, that there's all these actors and actors, actresses and directors who many people never, ever heard of, but they were huge megastars right. back in the day. Yeah, yeah, and she was definitely one of them. Okay, mine, uh, my number 10 is a film called Champagne, which is a British silent comedy directed by a little-known director called Alfred Hitchcock. Who was very well known for his comedies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he did. <laughs> he, yeah, I know, but he did loads of silent movies yep, before yep. he... Uh, he did all the ones that many of us know. This one stars Betty Belfort, Gordon Harker, and it's about a young woman forced to get a job after her father tells her he's lost all his money. So, you know, imagine hilarious consequences with that one. Right. But it's the fact that it's a Hitchcock film and it's a comedy film. It's just something I'd, uh, I quite like the sound of. Absolutely. And I'd like to check out. Very good. All right. Well, uh, speaking of Alfred Hitchcock, my number nine film is The Farmer's Wife, which is also an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And it was also a comedy, which, of course, is part of the reason I wanted to see it. And, you know, mostly it's just that I'm a big Alfred Hitchcock fan and I'm also a completist. So any Hitchcock films I haven't seen, I want to see. So that is The Farmer's Wife and it's my number nine. 
Okay, my number nine is a film called The Viking. Uh, let's see. It's based on the novel The Thrall of Leaf the Lucky. It's it's a Viking movie, but the main reason is I want to see it is because it was the first feature-length Technicolor film that featured a soundtrack, and it was the first film made in Technicolor's Process 3. So it was a turning point in cinema with regards to colour and things like that. And, you know, everybody loves a bit of Viking action. Oh, absolutely. So that's my number nine. Very good pick. I saw that, and I was actually curious about it, and it almost made my list because of the same reasons, but uh, it, it got squeezed out. So Yeah. Okay, well, my number eight is a film called Matinee Idol, and it is a uh, murder mystery about a young actress who's suspected of murder. And what really attracted my attention to it is it was directed by Frank Capra, who, of course, directed It's a Wonderful Life and a movie called Meet John Doe, which I discussed on last week's episode. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think Frank Capra made some great films, and I thought this sounded intriguing, so I'd like to check it out. I like the sound of that one. Okay, my number eight is The Mysterious Lady, which it was an MGM film starring Greta Garbo. And it's uh, always like a bit of Greta Garbo. I've not seen this one. It's like Secret Service spying and lots of things like that. Uh, she's posing, people posing as different people and trying to get secrets from others and Greta Garbo being all moody and gorgeous. All right, well, my number seven is a film called Easy Virtue, and it is also directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Now, this one is a sort of a romance. It's also a silent film. The only reason it made it a little higher than uh, the previous film is because it is based on a play by Noel Coward, and I figure, well, Noel Coward, as far as playwrights go, is one of the best, so this one should be interesting. Yeah, I saw that one as well. It didn't make my list but because it already had a Hitchcock one on, but I'd I'd like to see all of his right, exactly. at some point. Yep. But, uh, okay, my number seven is a Japanese silent film called Kurama Tengu. Oh, man, but then you have to watch it with subtitles. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> subtitles, yeah, the silent film. <laughs> uh, it says, though, it's directed by Tepe Yamaguchi, and it was part of a series depicting the bold and daring hero Kurama Tengu, and I just like the sound of it. It's, uh, it says, to my research, it was saying one of the scenes, he's the main character, take on numerous foes with a sword in each end, so I just want to see this Japanese silent movie, which, which sounds like it's got epic sword fights. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Y- using the technology from back in the day, so it must... It must be quite raw, but really good. I'm sure. It sounds cool. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's my number seven. Very good. All right. Well, my number six is a movie that you've already mentioned, and it is Champagne by Alfred Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, a trend here. Like you said, I want to see all of Alfred Hitchcock's movies, so I just put them all on my list. He had three films out in 1928, and Champagne, I believe, uh, like you said, is a, a comedy, and I thought, well, that certainly sounds intriguing, uh, seeing Hitchcock do a comedy. Obviously, some of his movies had some great comedy in them. I'd like to see what it's like watching him do an entire film that's supposed to be a comedy. So that's my yeah. number six. Okay. My number six is West of Zanzibar, which was directed by Todd Browning. Yeah, Todd Br- Browning is best known for being the director of Dracula in 1931 and the cult classic Freaks in 1932. Uh, but this one, West of Zanzibar, stars Lon Chaney as uh, a magician paralyzed in a brawl with his rival, played by Lionel Barrymore. And it all sounds dark and there's... You know, it's set in the African jungle. There's all things going on, people fighting and uh, betrayals, and it's about you know a bit, bit of a horror, a bit of a magic spells being done and things like that. It just sounds like a bit of a blast. Yeah, and there's also apparently uh, lots of horror film fans want to see more of it because there was lot, uh, many scenes and sequences were were cut and have since been lost. Mm, so it's, interesting. Uh, but the film itself is still there. But 
But that one sounded really interesting. I Absolutely. see that one. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so up to number five. All right, well, my number five is The Power of the Press, starring Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and once again directed by Frank Capra. And uh, it is a silent film, but it is also a, it has to deal with a, a newspaper and a, a murder. And uh, those are two things that I find enjoyable. Well, I don't find murder enjoyable, but, you know, <laughs> watching movies about it, I do. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I always, any kind of journalism movies, I've always been a sucker for. I definitely have a, a real bent for those. That's one of my favorite genres. So I thought this sounds good. Frank Capra's a great director who I like a lot. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. is in it. Uh, you know, it's got it's got journalism and it has a mystery. So what more could I ask for? Well, very good. And my number five was also The Power of the oh, Press. Oh, look at that. <laughs> Shocking. For those reasons. That we matched Frank up Frank Capra again. film. And I do like the, uh, you know, news reporters getting involved in, in you know, murders and suspected murders and stuff like that. So, right. yep. So that's our number five. All right. Very good. Well, my number four then is... The Man Who Laughs, starring Conrad Vate, and I think we discussed this in an earlier um, an earlier episode briefly. But The Man Who Laughs is uh, the, the the character is the basis for the Joker in the comic books. It's it's pretty yeah. well known that um, Bill Robinson and Bob Kane uh, drew their visual uh, imagery for the Joker off of this character of the Man Who Laughs, and so it's just there's a picture of him. I, I think we've said this before. Look it up online. You'll you'll probably recognize it's a pretty famous image, and it's very clear where the inspiration for the Joker came from. So just just for that historical fact alone, I want to see this movie. Very good. Uh, my number four is The Fall of the House of Usher. Uh, this There was two out in that year, both Fall of the House of the Usher. One was an experimental avant-garde film. This, but the one I'm doing was a the French film directed by Jean Epstein, uh, based on the, the short story by Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, and I mainly wanted to see it because Roger Ebert included the film on his list of great list of great movies and i do like the fall of the house of usher the story anyway so sure this this one if roger Ebert was saying it was one of the great movies of all time then it had to be on the list yeah actually it's funny it was um i had it on my short list and it just got eked out but i do like the the story and i am intrigued yeah, to see it yeah. for sure all right well my number three is the last movie that i want to see because my top two are films that i have seen yes same here yeah all right so my number three then is speedy starring harold lloyd as we've discussed he came up a little earlier he's a great silent film star we've talked about him a few times on the show before yeah, yeah. Uh, i love harold harold lloyd i like to see all of his films i haven't caught yet interestingly this was not only his last uh, silent film but it is also believed to be the first film where somebody is depicted on camera giving the finger which I, wow. I thought was a kind of an interesting historical subnote. Now, in the film, apparently he's giving it to himself in a mirror, uh, ah. but I, I thought that was that was very interesting. So I do want to track this one down and, and watch well, it. Also ironic, though, considering the fact we learned from my robot is that he blew some of his fingers off right, with right. a prop bomb. Exactly. So I don't know where this falls in that timeline. Maybe he used his yeah. other hand, or maybe it's before that happened. But still, a lot of interesting stuff floating around the Harold Lloyd film. So. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that's my number three. I like that. Well, my number three is The Last Command, directed by... Joseph von Sternberg. Uh, it's all about a Russian, a Russian soldier or general who ends up. He goes, he goes through various events, and he ends up being a homeless man, and but gets involved as a an, an extra in a movie that's being made. And he people who he'd been treating badly when he was a general are there, and it's all this. It just it, the plot itself sounds brilliant, but it's also very interesting because the star Emil Jennings. Uh, he's playing this, the general. He won the very first Academy Award for Best Act in a Lead Role for his role in this, and also another film for The Way of All Flesh. Uh, 1928 was the only year that multiple roles were considered for the Oscars. But it's uh, it's also been the film's also been deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the United States Library of Congress, and was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. Very cool. So it sounds like a biggie. Yeah, for sure. Definitely worth yeah. tracking down. 
All right. Well, my number two is a film I have seen, and it is, it's a short film, but it is none other than Steamboat Willie. And, of course, <laughs> best known as the first appearance ever of one Mickey Mouse. Are you going to whistle the, t- the theme song yeah. there? Yeah, I'm crap whistling, though. <laughs> I can't. Yep. Um, well, that's good. That, that's a more that, good podcast. That was riveting. Yes. Yeah, podcast. We are gonna. This is the episode we're gonna win the awards for. Phil. Yeah. Listen to this whistling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is podcast immortality right here. Is what yeah. we're doing. We are laying down the groundwork for podcast immortality. Every episode from now on is gonna have whistling. Oh yeah, yeah. That would that would definitely bring the listeners in in droves. <laughs> what they gonna whistle this week? <laughs> Who knows? It's. I, I heard this week Phil and Mike are having a whistle off. Oh my God! You've got to listen to that loads of times. Uh, Our special guest whistler. Right, right. It's Walter from the Muppets. <laughs> They're doing a full episode just by whistling. <laughs> They'll be like, "Dude, where's my car?" While well, I do is say, "Dude and sweet," except we'll whistle the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, painful. Okay. Uh, anyway. So it's well. The outtakes don't make themselves. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, man. That's right. Yeah. What people people don't realize is that all our outtakes are carefully scripted, the, yep. and vigorously rehearsed. That's right. That's the part of the show we rehearse the most. Exactly. Yes. That's the most popular part of the show yeah. too. So. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> okay. All right. We we're up to number two. Number two. So um, yeah. yeah. So Steamboat Willie, of course, being the first appearance of Mickey Mouse. Uh, as we all know by now, I'm a Disney fan. But even if you're not a Disney fan, I think you have to respect that this is the birth of a legend. I mean, Mickey Mouse is the most recognized fictional character in the entire world. He built an empire. I mean, you just can't. You cannot underestimate the importance in the history of cinema and Hollywood and animation of Mickey Mouse. So, and Steve yeah. Willie is a fun. It's a fun short film. It's got that great, you know, whistling theme song and stuff. And uh, you know, it's just it's just a piece of history, though. So that's my number two, and I, I do enjoy it. An excellent pick. Okay, my number two is you already mentioned it, The Man Who Laughs. Ah, uh, you have seen it. Okay, very good. Yes, I've seen it. Yes, it's uh, it's it's pretty good. It's it's some sometimes as with old, lots of old films. It it can take a few minutes to get into it. You just gotta you gotta sort of like put your brain into slightly different gear. Right, right, exactly. You know, but if you're in the right mood, as with, as with lots of films, you're in the right mood though. It's a, it's an enjoy well not enjoyable one because it's quite a well, it's a melodrama or with some not quite not quite a horror film, but it's it's a bit like a uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Right, this the story basic story of it, but it's an adaption of Victor Hugo's novel of the same name, stars Mary Philbin and Conrad Veidt as Gwynplaine, who is the guy. As you've already said, the Joker was based on. And this character gets dis- he's disfigured as a boy to have a permanent grin on his face, hence the man who laughs. Right. And uh, let's see what to do. It was one of the uh, the early Universal Pictures films that made the transition from silent films to sound films using the movie tone sound system introduced by William Fox. Uh, but it's it's riveting, it's uh, extremely well acted, and it's, you just can't take your eye off his face when you see him smile. And it's, uh, he had some kind of mouthpiece in there and it just must have been quite painful to do but it's uh it was well worth it and if you do get a chance to see it it's worth checking out yeah for sure i definitely want to see it very good very good so pick. my number two what have you got for your number one All right, my number one is a film called the circus starring one charles chaplin and uh, again as we've talked about on the show before i'm a very big charlie chaplin fan but the circus holds a special place in my heart it was the very first charlie chaplin film i ever saw ah and 
it still to this day is one of my favorites. I know he has others that are more popular and more well well regarded critically, but for my money, the circus is still one of his absolute best. And and part of the reason for that is it does it does have a little bit of the sentimentality that that Chaplin was famous for. But it, unlike some of his later films where he really tried to get the messages across, this was still early Chaplin. It was it was past the point of him making the short films. It's a feature length film. I think it's about sixty or seventy minutes long. Mm-hmm. So it has the the feature length sort of in a, you know mentality to it, but. It's it's a little simpler in its storytelling, and and the physical comedy in the circus is absolutely brilliant. I, it is I watch it as a modern viewer, and I am blown away by what he accomplishes in the way he. It's it's hard to describe. Not just the way he moves his yeah, body, but yeah. the way he interacts with his environments. And there's a scene on a boat where he's being chased. He keeps going in and out, and it's just it's hysterically <laughs> funny and it's brilliant. And it's just well, it's, he always makes it look like the things he's doing are just accidental. Yes, yes, but you know exactly. It, must, it just must be taking so long to perform. Uh, and the, the, the rehearsing and stuff that he must have gone into it. But I'm telling you, you watch it and you're just like it's like clockwork, and it's like watching an intricate machine at work. And but you're laughing at the same time, and it's just such a it's a funny movie. And again, just the physical humor. Humor in it is is astounding to me how he managed to pull all that off. So the circus, not just a Charlie Chaplin film, one of my favorite Charlie Chaplin films. Excellent, nice pick. Thank you. Okay, my number one is La Passion de Jeanne d'Arc. Okay, which is nineteen twenty eight silent French film based on the the actual record of the trial of Joan of Arc. It was directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer and starred Rene Jean Falconetti. And it's uh, it always it pops up in lots of the uh, lists of you know you know important films uh-huh. made. Because just the way the way it was shot, they built a huge concrete set, but it was mainly f- shot in close-ups of the actors, and they weren't allowed to use makeup and to get the you know just to get the emotion and the just just to get the look right. And and uh, Renee, she's just she's just amazing as Joan of Arc, just getting this the passion over, and she's she's on trial for heresy by the French clergyman, and she's threatened with torture and all everything, and it's just it's just a masterclass in f- filming, lighting, acting, and just everything. Oh, very good. Very good. Yeah. Okay, well, with that, then, we wrap up our top 10 films of 1928. Uh, if, if you have thoughts on the films of 1928, feel free to share them with us. I'm going to guess maybe not everyone's seen a ton of movies from that year, but still, I thought it was yeah. an interesting year overall. Yeah, it's always good to, you know, look back at uh, the older films because without them, we wouldn't have the films we've got today. That's right. Absolutely. All right. Well, then on that note, I think it's time to wrap up this episode. Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell people where they can reach us if they'd like to share some feedback? Okay. You can find us on Twitter at after underscore the ending. We're at facebook.com backslash after the ending podcast. And you can find us on various different uh, podcasting things. So, so you'd be listening to this on one of these, but one you can listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, .com, Podbean, Stitcher. You find us put after the ending podcasting, and we'll we'll, we'll be there. Yes, we will. We'll be there, we'll to be keep there you, for you. Yeah, you know, we'll we'll nurture your ears <laughs> with our our wonderful words about and film. our dulcet tones. Yes. And uh, if you'd like to email us directly, you can reach us at afterthending at verizon.net. And Phil, where can people find you online? You can find me at mainly at liveforfilms.com and all its associated social media outlets. Very good. And where can they find you and your writing? Well, they can find me at my fiction writing at wordsoutloud.com. And you can follow me as an author on facebook.com slash mikespringofficial. All right. So, Phil, we've got an exciting show in store for next week. Tell people what they can listen in to hear. Okay. Next week, we'll be looking at the top 10 films of 1977. So, yes, you've already guessed 
what our number one film will be. Yeah, it's pretty obvious if you think of, you know, I don't know, the most popular film of all time that came out yeah, in 1977. I don't think there'll be a it's lot It's not of that long, long time ago, but it's, you know, it's a while back. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't a long, long time ago. No. Uh, but it was in, you know, it was in this galaxy, not a galaxy yeah, far, far yeah. away. So, yeah. you know, I think, you know, people can probably figure out which movie it was. But there will be a lot of suspense surrounding our number 10 through number two picks. So tune in for that. Yes, yes. Uh, so that's our year. We'll also have a Mighty Morphin Mini feature. And the films we will be going after the ending will be Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon, which I think is our first martial arts film, and Groundhog Day. And the films we'll be going after the ending with will be Bruce Lee's <laughs> Enter the Dragon, which is the first martial arts film, and also Groundhog Day. <laughs> Phil? Phil Edwards? <laughs> Bing! <laughs> Uh, yeah, looking forward to doing that one. That should be interesting. I, I think it's going to be tough to resist the challenge of just saying the yeah. same thing over and over again. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to yeah, turn. I, off I think the main listeners. challenge though is going to be you know resisting the edge to say the same thing over and over again. <laughs> right, exactly. I, I do think the main challenge is going to be not just saying the same thing over and over again. So it'll it'll be interesting. Phil, Phil, <laughs> Phil Edwards. <laughs> so next week we'll be doing 1997. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that, I think on that note, we should cut that off. Otherwise, we go on with this all night. Um, but, yeah. yeah, so please join us for that. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with those films and, uh, and that year, 1977. And uh, until that time, I am Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Joey, the, Joey the Lips promised that I'm just I – can't, I can't talk. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I didn't go. Uh, I, I, you know, I didn't. Um, I don't know what the hell I didn't do. I don't know what I'm talking about. Tonight. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. So that was my uh, long term. How about yours, Phil? Let's let's wrap. Let's let's uh, let's. Blah blah blah. Blah blah blah. He explains to him that Vicky was right. Humanity was facing. Expi- I can't do. <laughs> he explains to him that Vicky was right. Humanity was facing extinction. There wasn't long left before humanity would be. That was just just explaining what extinction is. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And that's our mighty Morton. Mighty Morton. And that's our mighty Morphin. God, I can't even think of it now. The River Flem. The River Flems. God. The River Thames floods the in London. The River Flem sounds really yeah. disgusting. Like I, I imagine say. That to, yeah. <laughs> uh, Could you Liam imagine Trots- a whole river of phlegm? Like, I don't even know. Oh, my wanna... God. Imagine swimming in it. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Mm. Just gross. <laughs> <laughs>